Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, hello and welcome to The Ron Show. Thank you for listening, whether it be on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Later in the show, I will talk with frequent show guest Andrew Heaton. He of Sagamore Hill Consulting, also a senior advisor to the Jerrica Richardson campaign for Congress. The 6th Congressional District is the seat that she's eyeing, as is current Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Yeah, lots of questions to ask about that, and we will get to that in just a little bit. First things first, uh, I know we've talked a lot, ad nauseum, about the Fonnie Willis, Nathan Wade insinuatory accusations coming from the Trump election interference tribe. And we've got just a little bit more to add to that, a little bit of movement, some news that was made on Thursday to catch you up on. Uh, Maya Prabhu at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporting that legislation filed by Senator Greg Dolezal from Cumming, Georgia, uh, will create an investigation into the Fulton District Attorney, Bonnie Willis, in response to her indictment of former President Donald Trump and also the uh, accusations that Willis is in a, quote, improper relationship with the special prosecutor, Nathan Wade, who she hired to help lead the investigation into uh, Donald Trump and his now co-defendants to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, Dolezal's legislation would create a Senate special committee on investigations that would have the ability to subpoena people and evidence and require that testimony be given under oath. Uh, no other legislative committees under Prabhu require that witnesses testify under oath. Under the measure, if the committee finds there has been misconduct, it can recommend changes to the state law or budget. You'll remember that Joyce and Lynn Wade's attorneys uh, last week coughed up some um, of... Nathan Wade's credit card statements that showed he purchased airline tickets, uh, hotel stay, and uh, cruise tickets as well for himself, his mother, and Fonnie Willis. Incidentally, I was uh, reading on Twitter X, whatever we're calling it now. Is we calling it X? Are we just resigned to calling it X? Anyway, I was reading uh, a tweet on X. See, that's stupid. Uh, that. <laughs> Uh, someone who I trust about all these legal matters, uh, Anthony Michael Christ, the law professor, political scientist at Georgia State University. He shared from the X account at GSU Grinding. See, I don't know who this is, but he signed off on it. He literally retweets this. See, this is stupid. Uh, and said, yep. At GSU Grinding writes, I didn't realize until today that in the event of recusal or disqualification, the PAC, which is the Prosecuting Attorneys Council, could appoint a private attorney rather than a district attorney to oversee the case. This makes things much easier. Just immediately point John Floyd, assuming he would accept it based on the fact he's already a special prosecutor on the case. This would be a home run for the case, the prosecuting attorney's counsel, and even Willis. He clearly would proceed with the case as he's already on the team. It would also greatly minimize delay. That should alleviate concerns about the case going to trial at all or in a timely manner since he is already familiar. He continues, or whoever this is continues, it also makes the prosecuting attorney counsel's job easier. Floyd is more qualified than anyone in the country to handle a case like this. No one could possibly criticize the appointment of Floyd in good faith. If I were Willis, I'd be having this conversation with Floyd, then Pete Scandalakis at the prosecuting attorney's counsel to see if I could make this work as a way of voluntarily recusing. 
Uh, meanwhile, David Weikert, Wickert at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution tweeted, or X'd, <laughs> that there is a vote set for Friday on Pete Dolezal's legislation in the Georgia Senate, creating a panel to investigate Fonnie Willis. Uh, I also noticed that a uh, friend of the show, frequent guest, commentator at the Georgia Recorder, Jay Bookman, wrote a commentary that I will share in today's show notes at ronchoydl.com. The headline, two stories of vows taken and vows broken of boundaries crossed and trust shattered. This is a recipe for chaos, he writes. Take the most important legal case in our state's history, Donald J. Trump versus State of Georgia, with stakes so high that the outcome could alter the course of our republic. Toss that into a mixing bowl, then add Nathan Wade v. Jocelyn Wade, a case of a very different sort, a case about a marriage gone bad, a case deeply personal and ugly with stakes that ought to be important only to those involved. Mix thoroughly, and what you have is an unappetizing mess, Jay Bookman writes. In many ways, though, the two cases are not as indifferent as they may appear. He writes, both are stories of vows taken and vows broken, of boundaries crossed and trusts shattered. They feature lies, false justifications and deceptions, played out in furtive hotel meetings and phone calls. They ask the justice system to set the price that those who betrayed must pay to those they betrayed. And in each case, all the worst aspects of human nature are on display. And at the center of both cases, we find Fonnie Willis, district attorney for Fulton County, playing very different and conflicting roles. It is a predicament largely of her own making because she broke some basic rules. You don't put your lover on the public's payroll. You don't have a romantic relationship with a subordinate. You don't raise racism as a false sword against legitimate criticism because by doing so, you blunt that sword when it will be needed later for genuine cause. These aren't complex issues, Jay Bookman writes. These are the standards that leaders are expected to live by, and Willis knows it. She tells us that in a resurfaced video clip taken from her 2020 campaign for district attorney. We have that audio. And um, I certainly will not be choosing people to date that work under me. Let, let me just say that. Mm. Um, you know, we are at a place in society where things happen in people's relationships, husband and wife. Sometimes there are outside relationships. I don't think that that's what the community is concerned about, although there, you know, there might be a, a moral breaking in that. I think that what citizens are really, really concerned about is if you chose to have inappropriate contact with employees. I mean, there's nothing that I can say on it other than it is distracting. Um, it is certainly inappropriate for the number one law enforcement officer in this state. Um, uh, she said it back in 2020. Back to Jay Bookman's column, Willis was right then and wrong now. He adds, in a strictly legal sense, though, it's hard to see what this changes in the Trump case. The facts of the case against the ex-president and his co-defendants remain the same. The law remains the same as well. The mistakes made by Willis outside the courtroom do not wipe away those of Trump. Two wrongs don't make either side right. It's also hard to see a judge order Willis' removal from the case. The allegations that she has pursued the case against Trump for personal financial gain are far too abstract and flimsy to require that step. However, Jay Bookman writes, if her legal authority remains solid, her moral authority does not. You don't find that authority codified in a law book. Yet once lost, no judge can restore it. In the role of district attorney, Willis speaks for the people, and unfortunately, that voice is seriously compromised. For that reason alone, a credible replacement is probably necessary, if possible. Those trying to defend Willis suggest that the allegations raised against her are the product of a right-wing smear campaign, and they probably have a point, Jay Bookman writes. But that doesn't mean the allegations aren't true. 
And at this point, complaining about it is like complaining about the sun rising. You know it's going to happen. When you take on a target such as Trump and those surrounding him, you have to know that you become a target yourself and you armor yourself accordingly. It is a gross misjudgment, Jay Bookman opines, to leave yourself so open to an attack on your credibility. In a courtroom, as in politics, success requires that you anticipate and prepare for what your opponent will throw at you. It's frustrating that didn't happen here. Okay, turning the page. I don't know how many of you have followed this story here uh, in Metro Atlanta, maybe throughout the state and the rest of the country, if you're listening from wherever you are. You may not have heard about this story. The city of Decatur, Georgia, just outside Atlanta, the school district had decided it was going to curtail lunch offerings for students who were in arrears on paying for school lunch, offering them a cheese sandwich and milk. I mean, if you got it and you're in the school and all the kids saw that that's what you got for lunch, it's pretty easy to deduce, oh, you're one of the poor kids or you're you're behind on your bill paying. It's embarrassing for a kid to have to endure that. And yet that's what the city of Decatur school system decided to do to kids who were in arrears. Well, Zoe Seiler at Decaturish.com, I'll include this in the show notes today, reports that the city school district, the city schools of Decatur, has announced that they received a donation to deal with $88,000 worth of school lunch debt. Zoe Seiler continues to report the uh, city schools of Decatur announced earlier this month, the beginning February 1st, the district meal charge procedures would be updated and students can have a maximum of three meals charged to their accounts for the entire school year. Once the limits are reached, students will be given an alternate meal. The alternative meal is a cheese sandwich and milk. She writes, for middle and high school students, that means $10.50 can be charged to their account, and it's $9.75 for elementary students before they are given a cheese sandwich. I mean, hey, I get it, but it's the optics, you know what I mean? Uh, Zoe Seiler reports, the school district had incurred a balance of about $88,000 in unpaid meal charges. $88,000. I mean, it's a drop in the bucket, honestly. Uh, of that amount, 46% are students who pay for lunch. 36% are students who receive free or reduced lunch. 6% are CSD staff. and twelve. Per- wow. And 12% are students who are no longer in the school district. Further down in the story, she reports, following that news, Jasmine Crow Houston jumped into action and launched a GoFundMe to cover the cost. In about 48 hours, she raised over $86,000. At this time, the GoFundMe donations have not been given to the school district. Given CSD's announcement of the corporate foundation grant that they received to cover this cost, Crow Houston said she has reached out to GoFundMe to issue refunds to those who contributed. She had hoped the donation would go to be used to clear the debt and create a nutrition reserve fund, quote, so that when other kids can't pay one day, that the money can be pulled from to still make sure that those kids eat. Crow Houston told Decaturish that she offered to still make a donation, but was told the district would like to see the funds go where there is a greater need, which I guess explains why she said, no, we'll just give the money back. If you're wondering if that name sounds familiar, Jasmine Crow Houston is the founder and CEO of Gooder, G-O-O-D-E. 
are, and they are an organization that works with businesses and foundations, some local and regional governments, and sports teams to provide quality food to local communities. Uh, They do pop-up grocery markets, grocery meal delivery services, student snack packs, and the Gooder grocery stores as well. That young lady making a difference in our community. In fact, I think I've reached out to her to try and get her on. It's tough. <laughs> it's it's not easy. And and she's busy. She's got this huge endeavor to uh, partake in, but at least she's got time to, to do some good and uh, look out for our kids in schools. All right. I have said to you many times in the last few weeks that Republicans have absolutely no interest in finding solutions for what ails our southern border And damned if I wasn't right, and damned if they haven't proven that here in just the last 18 hours. I'll explain. You'll hear it straight from them when we return to discuss, yay, immigration. And Andrew Heaton, senior advisor for the Jericho Richardson uh, for Congress campaign, joins us in the back half of the show. When the Ron Show returns here on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show. I've been saying for uh, at least a week or two now, Touching on immigration issues. And by the way, the House and Senate have been trying to work on some sort of a plan since October. And here we are into the election year of January. And we have this from Punchbowl News. Uh, John Bresnahan reporting that Mitch McConnell told a closed meeting of Senate Republicans Wednesday that the politics of the border have flipped for Republicans and cast doubt on linking Ukraine and the border. Remember, that's what they wanted. They wanted no Ukraine aid unless they had a deal on the border. So they coupled those together, and now they're casting doubt on linking the two. When we started this, the border united us and Ukraine divided us, he said. The politics on this have changed. That's what Mitch McConnell told his GOP colleagues. This is all about Donald Trump. Bresnahan tweets, and he's not wrong. This is about Trump because Trump doesn't want to fix or see something fixed while he's not in office. He doesn't want any sort of tangible solutions uh, coming together, like the infrastructure law that Joe Biden got passed that he couldn't. He doesn't want that to happen anymore. He needs successes under his own watch for political purposes. So all that talk from Republicans about 5,000 a day, and, and in fact, I've got a, uh, <laughs> I've got a clip from, uh, from Ted Cruz about that very thing. million a year, right? 5,000 a day. And it's such an emergency. And yet at the same time, no, don't touch it until, what, a year from now? Yeah, nearly a year from now. 360 days from now is when they'll be okay with dealing with that. McConnell referred to Trump as, quote, the nominee, according to Bresnahan, and noted the former president wants to run his 2024 campaign centered on immigration. Well, sure. They don't have the economy. Inflation has cooled. They, I mean, they don't, they don't have the things that they thought they were going to run against Joe Biden on. And you certainly can't go <laughs> with uh, feeble old Joe Biden when you've got feeble old Donald Trump uh, atop the ticket. And Nikki Haley has proven that to be worth pointing out. The GOP Senate leader said, we don't want to do anything to undermine him. We're in a quandary, he added. Outgoing Utah Senator Mitt Romney, who is no fan of Donald Trump, spells it out exactly as it is. Do you think this is what he wants? 
the issue, Donald Trump. This is what he's doing. Oh, I, I think I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Yep. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is uh, is really appalling. But the but the reality is that that uh, we have a crisis at the border. The American people are suffering as a result of uh, what's happening at the border. Uh, and someone running for president ought to try and get the, uh, you know, the problem solved as opposed to saying, hey, save that problem. Don't solve it. Uh, let me take credit for solving it later. Uh, never mind the suffering of the American people or the people who are coming across the border legally and otherwise. How about the people in Ukraine? We have tied our this 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 makes our political process, by the way, a global mockery. As the world watches what's going on in Ukraine, they are running out of ammunition. And because we have these political hostage takers, the MAGA movement, inside the halls of Congress, holding up funding, Vladimir Putin gains the advantage. And maybe that's what Republicans want. Remember, Congress, the House and the Senate went on holiday recess saying, we'll deal with this when we get back and the Ukraine funding has to be tied to a border policy. Ted Cruz on Fox News earlier. Uh, You have blasted it, obviously. And now there's this other reporting coming out suggesting that maybe the uh, Mitch McConnell and and, Mm -hmm. leadership is pulling back their support for it. What is going on there? Are Republicans really going to back away from an issue that they keep saying needs to be solved? So let me break that into two pieces. You, You started by what Biden is saying. And I'll tell you what Biden is saying on that. There's a technical term for that. That's called a lie. And it's not just a little bit of a lie. It is a brazen. It is the definition of chutzpah. Here's why. When Joe Biden became president, he inherited the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years. He inherited great success and he deliberately broke the border. He opened up the border. Three decisions caused this crisis. His first week in office, Joe Biden halted construction of the border wall. He reinstated catch and release, and he pulled out of the incredibly successful Remain in Mexico agreement. And those decisions caused illegal immigration to skyrocket. Now, the reason he's lying, he doesn't need more money. Those decisions, he could, Biden could solve this problem tomorrow. He doesn't want to. So are you saying that, the, that there's no reason to have a border bill? We, act, we don't need a border bill. We, we achieved the lowest rate of illegal immigration in 45 years under Donald Trump. What was different is you had a president that wanted to secure the border. Joe Biden is defying the law right now. And, and so you asked about the border deal. Listen. I'm all for using every leverage we have to try to force Biden to comply with the law. But this deal doesn't do that. This deal was negotiated with Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer doesn't want to secure the border. They, he looks at 9.6 million illegal immigrants and what he sees is future Democrat voters. And he's willing to overlook the death, the suffering, the women and children being brutalized by human traffickers. All of those are acceptable prices to pay for Democrats to stay in power. By the way, you want to talk about uh, uh, brutality, barbed wire in the Dan River water? How about the, the woman and the two kids who were swept away and drowned because Texas wouldn't allow Border Patrol agents to come rescue them? Really, Ted Cruz? But you're, you're not coming after Ted, uh, Governor Greg Abbott for that? And by the way, he's also wrong about how uh, Trump's illegal immigration numbers were. Like when he took office, the rhetoric scared some people off or slowed some people down. But it got right back to Obama numbers just before COVID. Here was a follow-up question that I thought was pretty interesting, too. 
Is, is your position then that nothing is better than something? And, and have you even read this bill to be able to say that? So I haven't read the bill, and there's a reason. Nobody's read the bill. They won't actually give us the text. So the reason they won't give us the text, the way it works in Washington, if you're hiding the text, it means it's even worse than people think it is. It means if people knew what was in it, they'd be even more upset. All so he's already against it without having read it. So you've heard it from Mitch McConnell. Mitt Romney confirmed why. Ted Cruz confirmed it on Fox News that they've no interest in dealing with the immigration crisis that they believe is a crisis every day and want to politicize for the next uh, 10 months so that this country for the next 360 days still can't address immigration and, oh, by the way, aid our allies in the Ukraine as they try and hold off Vladimir Putin from toppling that government and then being neighbors with our NATO allies, eyeing them next. But do not forget, and don't let your MAGA friends forget, it was the GOP that wanted immigration policy and Ukraine funding tied together last winter before they went on holiday break to begin with. You can't govern with these fools. Ron Show, back after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Want to be on the show? Have a cause or campaign you'd like to speak up for? Email Ron at RonShowATL.com or call 404-919-2725. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Joining me, frequent guest of The Ron Show, good friend, Andrew Heaton from Sagamore Hill Consulting, also senior advisor for the Jerrica Richardson for Congress campaign, which is still a thing. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing all right, Ron. How are you doing today? I'm good. So uh, in this realm, uh, like I love to talk to you about just about anything that's happening politically, but in this realm, I really want to uh, dial in on the uh, 6th Congressional District now that we know what it looks like, where its borders are, where its boundaries tell us uh, voters are going to be, and uh I guess the surprise of the last month or so is that your client, Jerrica Richardson, who we've had on the show a couple of times, very lo lovely lady, despite the fact she's a Saints fan, uh, is uh, <laughs> is staying in the race. So tell me, uh, from your vantage point as her senior advisor, why did she choose to stay in the race when Lucy McBath, who is coming in as a pseudo-incumbent, has decided this is the district she wants to run in? Yeah, well, you know, it, I think for, for Jerrica and, and for the campaign, it goes back to the reason she got in the race in the first place. And so, you know, just to, to be clear, you know, we, you know, we and she especially, you know, she started looking at this race and she even formed an exploratory committee all the way back in the summer. Um, even as far back as like technically she started kicking the tires on this before the Supreme Court handed down the decision in Alabama that really kind of started setting the stage for the maps to change in Georgia. Right. So when she started kicking the tires on this, she was looking at, you know, I see a need in my community. You know, she lives in, 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 in Cobb. She lives just outside of Marietta. She represents as commissioner, a good portion of East and South Cobb. And, you know, that was at the time part of the, what I guess we're now calling the old sixth district. Um, and she, she saw a need, she heard members of her community saying, you know, we, we really love to have somebody who could, we, you know, that would run and could really represent what we view as our priorities. Um, and so she got into the race and she officially filed her paperwork in August. Uh, so again, you know, was in the race even before the maps, you know, decision had not even before the map decision had come down before the map decision, even in, because the arguments were heard till September. So she's been going into this for a while now, and she's been running this race for a while now in the sixth. Now, obviously when the maps changed, she had to really sit down and think about it. 
and especially once Congresswoman Bath declared, you know, she had made it clear in other interviews, like it was never her intention. She did not get in this race with a desire to challenge a sitting congressperson, especially a fellow Democrat, specifically a fellow Democrat. Right. Um, that was never the goal. But the more she had conversations with people after the maps changed and after it was clear they, that the, the maps were going to be settled, at least for this election, and the more she specifically looked at the map and talked to the members of her community that are still part of that map. So, again, this new map goes from South Cobb, East Douglas, South Fulton, and North Fayette counties. And um, especially, you know, talking to the folks and the community members she has long partnered with in areas of South Cobb and even to an extent South Fulton, um, she just, she kept hearing back the same thing, that people still believed in, in her. They still believed in her vision. They still believed in the reason she was running and what she was hoping to accomplish. And so they encouraged her and said, we'd like to see you stay on. And then these are people that have been supporting her for years. And so with that in mind, she said, I still believe in the vision. I still believe in the reasons we got in this race. And so we're, we're going to stick with it for now. And, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna really try to see if this message that we had already been running on and this message and, the, and these, these ideas and these priorities that she's been running on, you know, are, are, are alive and well in areas of the new district, like North Fayette, East Douglas. And, and so far, the reception has continued to be positive and has kind of reaffirmed that decision. Okay. So I guess, and this would be a question I, I think might be more apt for her if she were on the line. Uh, there's still a lot of work to be done. And actually, uh, I guess, decisions to be made about whether or not she even still has a commission seat on the Cobb County Commission. But Cobb is a fluctuating county. It is... Uh, not only trending blue, it's a blue voting county, but still under the grip of GOP control in a lot of aspects. In fact, the fact that the Cobb County Commission is a 3-2 majority Democrat district is something they're contesting by using the state legislature's map. And we've seen this happen with the Cobb School Board as well. D- does she feel like she's leaving Cobb County in a position where they'll be fine if she descend- if she ascends to uh, Congress? Well, you know, the, the great thing about all this is it's allowed her time to reflect on, you know, what what have they accomplished uh, in her time in office? And obviously it's being cut shorter than, you know, what she was elected to serve um, unwillingly. But, you know, the great thing is in that reflection, she's been able to really point to and look at some really like strong record of accomplishments in the short amount of time she's had. Um Obviously, she was first elected in 2020. Uh, she beat out um, a highly touted and highly recruited GOP candidate, won the election, first uh, black woman to win that seat on the commission, um, first Democrat in years. And in her time, she's really – she has been who she is. She is a, she is a policy walk. She is a just dynamo of energy and really – there's nothing she loves more than getting into the thicket of policy and actually putting policy into practice. And so her office, I think at last count, they have tracked and been able to note um, something a little over 300 different initiatives, you know, and those range in size. Um, Some are major policy initiatives, uh, partnerships with, you know, places like the VA to get across veterans issues, um, some of it as small as, you know, getting some potholes repaired and, and getting, uh, you know, Cobb Department of Transportation app to fix some things. Uh, but when in, you look at it in totality, 
Um, it's just a, a staggering number of accomplishments that she can point to. And so she does feel comfortable that she's laid the foundation that progress is possible, that accomplishments are possible. If, if, if people work together, if the community works together, if the community is heard and listened to and respected, um, she does feel like she's laid a good foundation. Now, obviously, the case uh, is, has been appealed to the Georgia Supreme Court, so we're still – she's kind of waiting to see. Um, obviously, I'm not part of her commission office, so I sure. don't know all the details, but um, as far as I know, the county has appealed the decision to the Georgia Supreme Court. They're still kind of waiting on that. Um, you know, not entirely optimistic just because of how it's gone so far. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, there is a very real chance. And I mean, I think that's one of the, the thing that's just mind blowing. You know, when they went about this, you have 159 counties in Georgia. The legislature has control over the district of them to a degree. For the most part, they always respect whatever the local delegation brings forward in terms of county maps. Mm-hmm. And in just a few instances, Cobb, Gwinnett, the state legislator decided to ignore the local delegation right. for very partisan reasons. Right. And out of 159 counties, as far as we can track, yep. out of 159 counties, Jericho was literally the only commissioner drawn out of her commission district. So it's hard not to feel and take that a little bit personal. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, and I, I've said this many times on this show, Cobb County is beyond a crossroads. It, it, it is a blue county. It is not just trending. It is a blue county. It has been so at least since 2016 when you look back at general election results in presidentials and gubernatorial races. So it, there, there's this uh, inability to accept that on the, uh, the county and state GOP's part. And man, they're just hanging on for dear life as long as they can. This is... Uh, the, the last gasp before they pull up stakes and move to another exurban county, I guess, uh, to, to, to set up shop somewhere else. But um, so I want to ask you, what are priorities in her mind for this new district that uh, she being in that district may give her a leg up on Lucy McBath? Well, and, and that's a great question. And, and so uh, I'm going to bifurcate that just a little bit. Um, you know, I, we, we are running our race. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think even trying kind of juxtaposing it as, you know, what we might do, uh, you know, versus Lucian Bass, I, you know, I, I, I really haven't dug into Congresswoman Bass, you know, where she, you know, what kind of their policy priorities are coming into this race. So I don't want to speak to that. What I can speak about from Jerrica's standpoint is a lot of the same priorities that we were looking at in the old six still apply to the new six. And so, you know, the, this new six really does have both a tremendous amount of resource and opportunity, but a tremendous amount of challenges. And it's really, it, it, it has this, the way you can look at it is there are these areas and pockets of extreme economic uh, power mm. and growth. Mm. And a lot of that does come from like kind of South Cobb, the kind of middle uh, area of Fulton that's in the district. Um, and then some areas of real economic challenge and opportunity in places like South Fulton, North North Fayette. Um, you know, th- there are some real opportunities that if the right policies and the right um, priorities are pursued, there's so much opportunity for uh, economic growth, for improvements in healthcare, for improvements in housing stability. And so, all that to say, the priorities that Jericho is looking at and have been hearing about a lot still apply. And so, you know, she kind of looks at this from a three-pronged approach. And we talk a lot about this a lot. It's kind of the 
the three-legged stool of how she's looking at this run. So one is just talking about, you know, and, and overall, the overall uniting theme is, is together we can. And that's because she truly did, you know, and I've met, I've met a lot of politicians. I've met a lot of elected officials. There are a few who do truly believe and put as much energy into working with the community, listening to the community, and partnering with the community as much as Jerrica. And so from that together, we can, you know, the, the three legs that go from out that are talking about reinvigorating the innovative spirit, really helping drive uh, workforce development, um, you know, investments in different aspects of the economy, um, looking at ways that we can economically enable through student loan programs and student loan reforms, um, housing initiatives, anti-gentrification measures, all these kind of come under like reinvigorating access to the economy, access to healthcare, um, and, and just trying to create a, a, an environment where innovation can thrive. And then from there, we talk about protecting our freedoms and we talk about information privacy, freedom of choice in healthcare, mm. you know, the border crisis, you know, these are all big issues that, you know, she's not afraid to tackle equal protection under the law. We talk about the voting rights act. Mm. Um, you know, she is very focused on what's been happening in previous attempts to get federal voting rights legislation passed. And then we talk about <clears throat> connecting communities to power. And, and what that, that's when we really get into the heart of what we're talking about is, is, is partnering with the community on community initiatives, being transparent, building trust with the community through roundtables, through different community-based education programs, uh, you know, town halls, different levels of civic engagement to make sure that she always has her pulse and her ear to the ground, what's happening in the district and what's happening with her different communities, making a safe community um, and making sure that everyone has access to the benefits that are available, making sure we're, we're connecting the community to, to federal grant pipelines, to different veterans programs, um, to different social safety net um, opportunities, as well as you know, one of the biggest things is when people try to interact with the federal government, it becomes a labyrinth. Mm. And so it is important for Jericho to help untangle that maze. And so those really kind of highlight what Jerrica, what Jerrica is going to be focused on. Um, and and those, you know, there's kind of a broad overview, but it all does come back to that central theme of Together We Can, because she is just, I, I have rarely met someone who, who is so invested and talking to and really enjoys being out there with the community and talking to them and actually understanding what it is they want to see done. We're with Andrew Heaton, Sagamore Hill Consulting, also uh, senior advisor for the Jerrica Richardson for Congress campaign. Jerrica taking on Lucy McBath, who has decided she's going to run for the sixth uh, congressional district in Georgia now that the maps have been redrawn. Have uh, Jerrica and Lucy spoken since uh, the decision was made that they're both going to run for this seat? Uh, no, they have not. Um, you know, I think I think we can just you know understand this has been a journey for for both camps. I can at least speak for our camp. It's right. definitely been a journey. Um, you know, there there have been some attempts, uh, but you know, to uh, to my knowledge at this point, there's been no direct one-on-one -on -one conversation. Okay, um, the, re the, re the reason the reason I ask is because I, I I think in a democratic process, one of the things uh, the, the 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 voter actually. 
benefits from most is having the opportunity to see candidates who are squaring off for uh, a nomination or a seat to uh, show up together at a forum or a debate or anything like that. I didn't know if any, uh, you know, any of that had been scheduled or yeah, no, discussed. And, it's, and I would say we are, we are completely open. Uh, Jer, you know, Jerrica's phone is, is, is there and she is, you know, we're more than happy to have that conversation. We want this to, to be that we, our goal is for this to not be any kind of, you know, super adversarial. Right. Like, you know, Jerrica has a ton of respect for Congressman Mike Bath, mm-hmm. her, her life story, her career, what she's done. Um, you know, it is nothing but respect there. So, you know, and we will absolutely comport ourselves in our campaign in that manner. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be nothing but respect. And we, we, you know, we will welcome any opportunities to, to have dialogue, to, to work together. Um, you know, we, while we are obviously competing and, you know, it is, it is, it is less about her specifically and more about, you know, this is a, a brand new district and, and these voters, you know, currently with, with Congressman Scott, who represented the bulk of this area mm-hmm. previously, mm-hmm. Um, with Congressman Scott opting to run in the new 13th, because he's currently the Congressman for the 13th and the 13th has completely shifted uh, <laughs> over to the uh, Southeast side of Metro Atlanta. Right. Um, you know, with him, with, with his choice to, to continue to run in that 13th district, um, you know, right now the, these, these voters and these constituents um, do not have a congressman on the ballot who currently represents them. And so for, for, for us, this is about, they've got a choice now and they've got an opportunity to elect a vision for what they want out of their congressman for at least the next two years, if not beyond. And we, uh, you know, and I speak for me personally, and I know Jerrica shares this belief, like this is, this is just about the democratic process. Like let, let us give them a choice. Let us give them some different opportunities and some different ideas about what federal leadership and federal partnership could look like and, and let them decide, give, give them a choice. I don't think anybody could argue that as long as the race is clean, as long as the race stays above board, you know, there's nothing wrong with voters having a choice and going from there. All right. Good deal. Quick break. Back in a second with uh, Andrew Heaton representing the Jerrica Richardson for Congress campaign here on The Ron Show, the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or review podcast. All right. We're back with Andrew Heaton from Sagamore Hill Consulting, frequent guest on The Ron Show, and representing the Jerrica Richardson for Congress campaign as a senior advisor. Uh, I guess my one last question to you would be... This is a, a crazy election cycle. There, there's no way to harken back to anything in the past to compare this to, given what's going on atop the ticket once we get to the general election cycle. It's going to be really important that turnout matters at the local end. So given that, Andrew, Lucy McBath comes with name recognition. Jerrica Richardson, outside of Cobb County, probably does not. How does Jerrica, being uh, the nominee, if she were to win that, benefit up the ticket? Let's be clear. We, like, there's no comparison, and we're not going to kid ourselves that there is comparison when it comes to brand name recognition, especially on a national stage. Yes, of course, Congressman Bat has a much larger microphone currently, a much larger brand, and has for years, um, and and has used it to nothing but wonderful ends. Um, and so, you know, we recognize that. You know, should we be privileged enough to win the primary? Like, that's that's going to be something we have to address. But I, I would say that from the get go. And this was a you know one of the things we thought about in what we originally were going to run in the old sixth, the most recently old sixth. Turnout was a big part of what we were focused on. Mm-hmm. Turnout and ground game 
um, was a big part of our strategy because, you know, what you got to keep in mind at that time, you know, the sixth district we had chosen to run in was built to be a Republican district. Right. We were going up, you know, we were going up against Congressman McCormick in our head. We were running in a district that had just most recently, I believe, gone right at plus 20, plus 19 Republican. Mm. Um, and so we knew we were only going to win and we were only going to have a real chance if, you know, I, I often joked it was um, threading the gap at Thermopylae, you know, and, and we had to find the 300 who could help us do that. Um, but we had to find it in terms of, you know, really targeting, narrowing down and building a field game and building a, a turnout and get up a vote effort that found every single Democratic voter possible. And here it's, it's going to be very similar. And we, you know, again, this goes back to who Jerrica is. Like, I, I just, I have never seen, and, you know, one of the things we'll be, you know, rolling out over the coming weeks are just testimonials from people in her, in her current commission district, many of which do live in this new congressional district, you know, just speaking to who she is as someone who gets into the community, who is part of the community, who connects to all of these different communities and makes them feel seen and heard. And I think when it comes to this, this, these upcoming elections, both the primary, but especially kind of what you're alluding to, the general. I think none of us are under the illusion that we are not going to have some real challenges when it comes to turnout in the general. And it's not it's 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 more about just the general political malaise where like a lot of folks are feeling right now. Mm -hmm. um, some folks have you know might have some specific complaints with the Biden campaign. I think a lot of which, you know, I have faith the Biden campaign is going to put a lot of resource and energy into starting to overcome those over the over the next you know nine, 10 months. But. It's just a general political malaise. A, a matchup is boring. A rematch is boring, you know, and this is a rematch. And rematches don't feel as exciting. Um, and especially just, you know, given the the demographics of the candidates, the the vitriol we are all constantly dealing with, there is just a general malaise. And I think there are a lot of us that fear like that's going to depress turnout. Yeah. So we need candidates who are going to be out there. We need campaigns who are going to be out there and be full partners and getting out the vote, not only for themselves, but for that for the general election. Because the reality is, if 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 Jerrica wins election, and you know Jerrica wins the primary, and then she's able, to, you know, she wins the general, and she's a Democratic congresswoman from the sixth district of Georgia, heading up to Washington. That's going to be a very different experience if she has a Democratic president to work with than right. she is if she's working with President yeah. a, a President Donald Trump. Which, let's be clear, that is who the Republican nominee is. We can all talk about they're still a primary, but it effectively is done. And so there is just as much at stake and just as much reason for this campaign to put every single effort into making sure that our general election turnout is as strong as possible. So for us, like this is a campaign for not only Jerrica. But it is a campaign for the entire Democratic ticket, especially at the top, because for for us to really be able to start putting in place the initiatives, the priorities that are going to be important for this district, the first thing is having a president who will actually sign off on it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to ask you one question. I'm hoping you can maybe answer it in 45 seconds because I'm running out of time here. How has mm -hmm. the state party responded to Jerrica staying in the race? You know, honestly, they've been very fair. Uh, you know, obviously, it's understandable. Some folks have called with questions or, you know, not really concerned, just questions, mm -hmm. wanting to understand kind of the strategy where our mind's at. But, right. to you know, in all defense, the uh, the 
Democratic Party of Georgia has been very fair and has not leaned on us one way or the other. All right. Listen, you got a lot of work to do. We've got a, a, what, about a couple months left in the primary season here. So uh, you've got an uphill climb to, to, to get Jerrica across the finish line. And I wish you guys the best of luck. Andrew Heaton, Sagamore Hill Consultant, Senior Advisor for the Jerrica Richardson for Congress Campaign. Thanks for joining the Ron Show today. Absolutely, Ron. Thank you. Uh, actually, hold the music here, guys. We have uh, some breaking news. NFL.com reporting that the Atlanta Falcons have decided they're going to name Raheem Morris head coach coming back to a familiar sideline. He is the current Los Angeles Rams defensive coordinator for the last three years, expected to be hired as the new head coach of the Falcons, according to NFL Network insider Tom Pelissoro. Uh, he'd been an interim head coach here before and a defensive coordinator under Dan Quinn. Oh, the Dan Quinn coaching tree. And anyway, if you haven't heard that yet, well, you heard it here first. Thank you so much for listening to The Ron Show. And our thanks to Andrew Heaton for joining us as well. Frank discussion about the sixth congressional race on the Democratic primary side. We have show notes and more at ronshowatl.com. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and then afterwards, wherever you podcast. Have a good one.